Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. So we come to the end of another week here on Political Rewind. Thank you all for being with us for today's show. Um, We're going to introduce our special guest uh, today in just a moment. But first, let me uh, say hello to Patricia Murphy, who is my partner on the Friday Political Rewind. You know her, of course, as a political reporter and columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Her column appears in the uh, Wednesday and Sunday newspaper, and uh, she also oversees the Jolt, which every day brings us lots of really interesting tidbits and major stories about what's happening in politics in Georgia and nationally. Patricia, um, I want to start by asking you a quick question before we introduce Dr. Bill Fagey. Have you ever seen a news release quite like the one that came from the Georgia Department of Public Health yesterday, which says the current surge of COVID cases throughout Georgia is stretching hospitals and EMS personnel and resources to unprecedented levels. As a result, many hospitals are having to declare themselves on diversion, meaning they're unable to provide normal emergency care to patients arriving by ambulance. And the department in this news release is urging people not to go to emergency rooms for many forms of treatment, including COVID testing or vaccinations. But they're saying they've got to reserve the emergency rooms for uh, really uh, particularly uh, uh, difficult cases. That's a remarkable statement about where we stand with the virus today. It really was, and it came in the form of in the form of a relatively short one-page news release. And to me, it just begged a million questions. Um, and the news release to me should have come a long time ago, and uh, needs to be a lot more specific about what is going on in hospitals. What can Georgians do? Um, and at the very bottom of that press release, it said vaccination is the best way to make sure that these mm-hmm. ERs do not continue to be stretched. I feel like that should be at the top of the press release. Yeah. Well, and that is a good moment to introduce our guest today, Dr. Bill Fagey. Dr. Fagey is uh, genuinely one of the great heroes of global public health. He was, as a young doctor, Uh, the one who devised and executed the plan that eradicated smallpox. I think I'm right to say, and Bill Fagey can correct me if I'm wrong, smallpox to this day remains the only disease that has been completely eradicated. Dr. Fagey was the director of the Centers for Disease Control, appointed by Jimmy Carter in, I think, 1977, served there for six years, went on as the founder of what is now known as the Task Force for Global Health, one of the major global public health institutions in the United States. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom back uh, in, I guess, the 90s by President Bill Clinton. And um, I, Bill Fagey, you've done the show before, and I'm so grateful that you are continuing to express um, a willingness to talk with us. Thanks for being here, first of all. And let me ask you, before we talk, we're going to talk about the history of vaccinations, because what's happening with COVID vaccines right now is not unique in the history of vaccinations. But give us your quick take on what uh, Patricia and I just talked about with what's happening in, uh, in, in Georgia right now. It's not only hard to hear, but it's hard to hear because it's not necessary. I mean, this simply should not be happening. And that's the problem with prevention, that when you look at individuals, states, countries, the world, we don't think of prevention until we've lost our health. And that's when everyone gets excited about we should invest in prevention. And as soon as the emergency goes away, uh, they do nothing to develop the infrastructure. So it really is a very sad moment. And uh, it's, it's our fault. We can't blame anyone else. Um, with that, let's talk. You, you have a, a great interest in looking back on the history of vaccines, on the history of viruses and disease. And I think to some extent you do it because it helps uh, frame the, a, a better understanding of what is happening uh, in our world today. 
So let's talk about um, smallpox, which was the disease that certainly uh, became the focus of your attention as a young doctor. Um, but let's go back in history before you came on the scene. Uh, we know that smallpox has been around for many, many centuries. There are Egyptian mummies that I think show signs of the scarring from smallpox. So I think it's fair to say it's been with us for centuries. But let's bring it a little bit to a little bit more contemporary times. Let's start in 1721 when a smallpox epidemic hit the city of Boston. Um, I think it was a sailor who came off of a ship uh, with smallpox. They tried to uh, isolate him, quarantine the, quarantine the sailor, but the disease got off the ship. Some uh, of, of 11,000 people in the city at that time, there were 6,000 cases of smallpox with 850 people uh, dying of the disease. And it was then that we had people like Cotton Mather, the great Puritan preacher, uh, telling the folks of Boston, you need to get protected against the disease. Have I got that right? And if so, how did Cotton Mather suggest people could be protected from smallpox? You have it right. And Cotton Mather was a person who uh, people either really loved or they hated. And the latter seemed to be the biggest group. And uh, he was also a keen scientist. He noticed in that outbreak in Boston that blacks had fewer cases of smallpox than whites. And he had a slave he talked to to ask him, do you know why? And the slave said yes. And he described variolation, which is unlike vaccination, except that it is taking the virus from smallpox and it's inserting it into a person's arm to give them a case of smallpox. And so he described that, that that's what was happening. And uh, uh, Cotton Mather became very excited about it, wrote a paper, a pamphlet, tried to get people to do this. And I think it was because he was so controversial that people did not want to do it. There was even talk of tarring and feathering him at, at that time. Now, one of the interesting things, you mentioned that uh, 6,000 of the 11,000 got smallpox. Smallpox in the United States was different than in England. In England, the population pressure or the population had grown to a point where this transmitted easily and was oftentimes a childhood disease. In the colonies, population density was not that high and it would come to an area after having been absent for 20 or 30 years. So Boston was had not had smallpox for a while. That's why it was so bad. But uh, the United or the colonies did not take him up on that. Now, this is interesting because 50 years later, this is going to come back to haunt us. Because at the same time, Lady Montague, who was the wife of the British ambassador to Turkey, had been writing back to the UK, to Great Britain, saying that uh, they're doing something in Turkey where they actually give smallpox to children. They'll take 30 children out to a farmhouse, give them smallpox, and it's not as dangerous as regular smallpox because they do it with an incision. So she uh, introduced this to England. In England, they tried it on, I think, seven prisoners who were destined to be hanged and uh, they said, if you do this, uh, we will release you. And of course, that seems like a pretty good bargain. And so they tried it. All seven of them did fine, and they were released. To the credit of the royal family, they next did this on their own children. Think of that. Mm -hmm. And so it became a standard practice in England. So in England, the troops were very elated. And in December 31st, 1775, the Battle of Quebec, the U.S. outnumbered the British two to one, but the U.S. troops had not been very elated. The British troops had a smallpox outbreak came through, and we lost that battle. Uh, I think that's why Canada remained with the uh, Great Britain rather than being part of the United States. So we lost that battle. Well, it caused George Washington such consternation 
This happened now December 31st, 1775. It took him over a year, but he finally decided, I have to very late American or the uh, colonies, the troops from the colonies. And he did. He did it secretly so the British would not be able to attack while there were a lot of sick soldiers. But it, it uh, gave an equal, uh, balanced the, the whole disease problem between the British and, and the Americans. And so as they went south, uh, the U.S. troops now had an equal uh, protection. The, um, uh, Patricia, it's interesting, the anti-vaxxers of today had nothing on the people in Boston who were against Cotton Mather for uh, promoting vaccination against smallpox. In November of 1721, a bomb was actually thrown through uh, a window in his house, and there was a message attacked, attached to the explosive because it didn't, it didn't explode, so it could be read. It said, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you, I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you. Uh, it, the parallel to today is is really fascinating to think about. But uh, the parallel is amazing. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, as somebody who is less familiar with this uh, with this territory, I was so struck by the parallel to today um, because we have such modern technology now and we have such modern vaccinations and it's so much less primitive. But that instinct to distrust it and resist it seems just as fresh as ever. And I'm wondering if you have any insights into that, Dr. Fagy, if that's continued to be a challenge through the years. Well, in fact, when we'll be getting to Edward Jenner in 1796, when he used the first smallpox vaccination, the first anti-vax groups then developed in England in 1796. I mean, that's how fast the opposition develops. It's difficult to see why people would do that, but, but they do. But with variolation, uh, you probably know that Benjamin Franklin, he just puzzled over this because he was in favor of variolation or inoculation. The two words are used interchangeably. And he had a five-year-old son. He wanted to have him variolated, but the son had a gastrointestinal disease that I've never seen actually described. And Benjamin Franklin went back and forth trying to weigh the risks and benefits. And he finally decides, I can't take the risk because of the disease he has. Well, his son got smallpox and died. And Franklin never forgave himself. He continued to write about this uh, through his life. And this is just to put this in context. We're now talking about the Enlightenment in Europe. This is the age of Voltaire. Voltaire, by the way, had smallpox. And he became interested in it. And he wrote to the colonies and said, if you look at the world as a whole, 60% of all children being born today will get smallpox, 60%. He said 20 will die, 20 will be disfigured for life, and only 20% will get away scot-free. And so this was a problem. Uh, Mozart uh, got smallpox as a small boy. I think he was about 11 years old, and his sister got smallpox. Louis the 15th died of smallpox. And if you read the history books, they'll say he got it from a priest. Totally inaccurate. He got it from a mistress. He took a young girl to bed and she was incubating smallpox. He got smallpox. His three daughters took care of him. They all got smallpox. He died. They didn't die. And so just through all that history of the 18th century, smallpox is a, a major factor in what happens to both royalty and peasants. Yeah, I want to talk, and Patricia, I want to bring you in and give you a chance to ask uh, Dr. Fagy a question. But let me, just to amplify quickly what Bill said about Benjamin Franklin, here's what he, one of the things he wrote later after losing his four-year-old son, which was truly the great tragedy of his life, as he said many times. He said, I long regretted and still regret that I had not given smallpox to him by inoculation. This, I admit, for the sake of parents who omit that operation under the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. 
Um, Patricia, we, that's what we're hearing today. We're hearing from people who refused vaccinations who are now struggling with COVID-19 in hospitals who are saying, I was so wrong, I should have gotten the vaccine. Not all of them, I understand that, but, but we're seeing examples of that. And now saying, please go get vaccinated, Patricia, another parallel. Yeah, I think it's also so interesting, Dr. Fagy, that you said the British royal family did have their children inoculated, but the French royalty did not. Um, was there a role for visible leaders at that time to lead by example, or or what's the? Could you give some insight into the differences of those two approaches at that time? It, it absolutely uh, explains why the British did this, because the royal family in England has been. Uh, a um, star on the hill for a long time, and people do watch what they're doing. And I think it's so brave that they actually did this for their own children. Uh, Lady Montague, by the way, was known for how uh, intelligent she was. People write about that she was just, you know, her mother died, her grandmother died, she was raised by an aunt, her father felt no obligation to give her an education. She learned Latin on her own. She became really a superstar of the academic European world. And at, when she got married, she was, uh, everyone talked about her beauty. Three years after she was married, she got smallpox and she was scarred for life. And it's interesting that before she was married, she had measles and she wrote a letter to her fiance. And he said, I hope it disfigures you so that it, I will lose some of my competition. And then three years after their marriage, she gets smallpox and gets disfigured. But she then had her own uh, children variolated, one of them in 1721, the same year as the Boston outbreak, because there was an outbreak in London at the time also. So these two figures that come together 50 years later with two cultures that followed dissimilar paths. So uh, the, we talk in, in the early 18th century, 1720s and so, about uh, Lady Montague, about Cotton Mather. Um, we talk about variolation, the, um, the incision in the arm, that in, which is in a smallpox, small amount of smallpox pustule from a smallpox victim are actually inserted, right? But, but we're going to move forward to vaccination. Right. And that brings us into the later part of the 18th century to the work that uh, Edward Teller uh, did. How is Teller such an important Edward, figure? Edward Why Jenner. is Edward I mean, Jenner. Jenner, I'm sorry. Why was Edward Jenner uh, really the, the, considered the father of vaccination? There may have been people who did this before Jenner, and it's often quoted that Benjamin Jesty, a German farmer, did this on his family. But it was Jenner who actually wrote this up. A milkmaid seemingly told him, oh, I'm not afraid of smallpox because I've had cowpox. Well, cowpox was just a local uh, disease of the hands of milkmaids. They would get a virus from the udder of a cow. They would get sores on their hands. But she knew she was not going to get smallpox. Jenner actually studied this for 12 years. What happens to milkmaids during outbreaks? He came to the conclusion she was right. And so in 1796, he took material from one of these cowpox lesions on the hands of Sarah Nelms and inserted it into a small boy, James Phipps. And then weeks later, he tried to give Phipps smallpox. Well, a lot of people say this was unethical trying to give him smallpox. No, all he did was variolate Phipps. And this was accepted in England. So he wasn't doing anything really out of the ordinary. But Phipps did not get smallpox. And uh, then uh, this went around the world very fast with Thomas Jefferson actually getting vaccine within three years of Edward Jenner's publication. Jenner did this in, in 1796, but he didn't publish it till 1798. And the reason was he was involved with a royal, local royal family and just didn't have time. But once he did, uh, once he did publish it, Benjamin Waterhouse from Boston was able to get him vaccine. 
And he actually went back to Monticello and vaccinated his slaves and the people around. So he was the first president to ever actually vaccinate anyone. Jimmy Carter was a second, just for the record. Really? Oh. Patricia, That's you so want to jump in? Yes, I would love to. Did that have any effect on um, uh, the American people's willingness to also choose to do that as well? The fact that Thomas Jefferson was willing to do it uh, for himself and for those around him? I think it did make a, a difference. And he actually gave vaccine to Lewis and Clark because he recognized how high the death rate was for Native Americans. I can find no proof that it actually worked. I think it somehow became impotent before they used it. They vaccinated a lot of the Native Americans, but I don't think the vaccine was actually good. But your question is, yes, uh, Thomas Jefferson did have a role in popularizing this. Um, you know, I, I, I want to move forward in time uh, a, a bit to talk about some of the other great vaccine uh, campaigns. Uh, but before I do, Bill, um, Help us understand. I said in the very introduction to the show today that the development of vaccines for smallpox, polio, uh, yellow fever, which we'll talk about, were among the most important uh, uh, creations in medical history. Uh, saving, I think World Health Organization says that between two and three million people a year uh, have their lives saved because of vaccines. Am I right to say that developing vaccines has been that important to our history as a people globally? Yes, it's absolutely the foundation stone for uh, the public health, the fact that we have vaccines. And uh, it took a while. See, it went from Jenner in 1796 to France with Louis Pasteur and that was quite a bit later, 60 years later, and then finally to the United States. And uh, people think of Sabin and Salk immediately with the United States. But uh, even before Sabin and Salk, uh, when I was born 85 years ago, I had only two immunizations. One was smallpox, one was diphtheria. But in the 30s, a woman by the name of Pearl Kendrick, working for the Michigan State Health Department, developed a vaccine against pertussis. And so important. She died about, uh, I think, 1970, uh, 1980 maybe. But at her eulogy, the dean of the School of Public Health at Michigan said there are hundreds of thousands of people alive because of Pearl Kendrick. He paused and he asked, could you name one? He said, I can't either. So he said she was never properly thanked, but she was so secure in what she had done that she didn't need to be thanked. And so I keep telling public health people, you're not gonna get rich and you're not gonna get thanked, but if you can get beyond those two things, it's a real satisfying profession. Pertussis, by the way, also commonly known as whooping cough. I think I'm right about that, aren't I? Correct, correct. Um, okay, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, let's talk about other breakthroughs and the uh, the politics that surrounded them, the obstacles that some of them faced, also the great heroic efforts that went into developing vaccines for other diseases. We'll do that with Bill Feggy and Patricia Murphy after these messages. Back with Dr. Bill Fagey and the AJC's Patricia Murphy. I have a, just a kind of very fundamental question as we start this segment of the show, Bill. Um, what's an, a vaccine? How does a vaccine work? So the COVID vaccine, I, well, I think that's a little more complicated because it's a new uh, uh, a version of vaccine. But in, but in general, what is injected into someone when they're vaccinated? Vaccination is basically trying to fool the immune system by injecting something so close to the problem, the virus or bacterium causing the problem, that so close that the immune system thinks that's what it is. And then it protects you against the real disease. And in general, these have been viruses that are killed or they're weakened in some way. 
The Salk vaccine is a killed virus. The Sabin vaccine is a weakened virus. So it, the immune system gets primed thinking that it's a real disease, but it's not. Um, so, so, wow, we got some. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. We just had some extraneous noise for a second there. I apologize for that. Uh, so very quickly, uh, it, w- back in the days when variolation was the standard, that was actually, we were actually injecting the, 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 the disease itself, smallpox itself, as opposed to a, a vaccine which imitates but isn't the actual disease. Is that the simple way of describing that? That's correct. And I have never been able to figure out variolation. And I've tried. Because how would people in the past have known whether a person got that virus through the respiratory tract mm. or through the skin? They would. There's no way that they would know that. So I don't understand how they realize the death rate would be less if you put this into the skin than if you got it through the natural uh, respiratory tract. I also don't understand how the Chinese could actually take the pustules, grind them up, and then have a person breathe them. To me, that would have been respiratory tract. So there are lots of things I don't understand about smallpox. Patricia? So I'd be interested to know, um, at what point did it become um, the role of the government um, to start to really get involved in the deployment of these uh, vaccines? It seems like there was always this this push and this natural human uh, sort of instinct to create them. But then when did the government, especially the American government, really start to see it as their job to make sure that people are doing this? What a great question, because I can tell you the date. April 12th, 1955, and a man by the name of Tommy Francis has done the field trial on the salt vaccine. And the field trial is what people now regard as the phase three test, where you're actually comparing people that get the vaccine with people that don't. Well, with polio, it's hard to do because for every child that has paralysis, someplace between 100 and 1,000 children have actually had the disease. So you need huge numbers. Well, Tommy Francis was a virologist at the University of Michigan, first person to isolate the flu virus. And Jonas Salk did not want to do a field trial. He said, it's immoral. I know my vaccine is good. Why would I have a placebo group that that's just immoral? Tommy Francis said, that's not the way science works. And he volunteered to do the field trial. 1.8 million children, hundreds of thousands of health workers, hundreds of thousands of educators. The halls at the University of Michigan had files up and down the halls with 1.8 million files for these children. I mean, it's incredible how he could do this before computers, and he did it in less than two years. On April 12th, 1955, he had a press conference. It was the 10th anniversary of FDR's death. And he came out in four words, safe, potent, and effective. And with that, the journalists went running off to try to find phones. And Edward R. Murrow was one of the journalists there that day. He took Salk to dinner that night. And he said, young man, today you've lost your anonymity. And he gave him a watch that Salk wore until he died. I got to know Salk quite well in his later years. I went to his memorial service at the Salk Institute, and a man from France, Charles Mariu, gave a talk, and he described the, uh, the family of vaccine, of vaccine people from Jenner in 18th century to Louis Pasteur in 19th century and then to Salk 20th century. And as I heard him talk, suddenly I could see the entire history of vaccines because I had been in his home in France and he showed me a picture on the wall of two men in a laboratory. He said, this is my father. He said, do you know who the person is next to him? I said, no. He said, that's Louis Pasteur. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He said, Louis Pasteur went to England and he said, in honor of Edward Jenner, let's call all immunizations vaccinations. 
vaccination actually refers to vaccinia. So it's very specific for smallpox. But he said, let's honor Jenner by calling that vaccinations and immunizing agents will call vaccines. And so I could see right to the beginning of vaccines. And this was the beginning of modern public health because we now had a tool. I think that's really a fascinating story. First of all, um, you know, polio is, there is still polio in the world today, sadly, um, although efforts have come close at times to eradication. But I was, you know, I was, a, I'm born in 1947. So as a young boy, I was uh, very aware and very frightened by the polio epidemic in the United States. I had a good friend who had, thank goodness, a very mild case of polio. And so I have vivid memories, Bill, of the first polio vaccine and how grateful I was to get a chance to, to have it. First, the Salk vaccine and then, and then the, uh, um, the uh, oral vaccine that Sabin uh, developed. But here's where I think Patricia's question leads us and what you were talking about, Bill. In May of 1955, President Eisenhower gave an address to the nation about polio. And it was the first time, to the best of my knowledge, that he ever called upon government resources to get vaccines out to the American people. So I'll just give you a couple of examples of uh, the points that he made in that uh, talk. He said the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare will compile reports on the total output of the manufacturers and allocate the vaccine to each state on the basis of its population of unvaccinated children within the five to nine uh, age group, which was the real target in those days. So there's the government. Then he says uh, the states will advise the Secretary of HEW as to their general plans for distribution. He went on to say to assist the states in providing free vaccinations. Uh, I've recommended, Eisenhower says, that Congress enact legislation making $28 million, a much bigger sum of money then, available to the states for the purchase of vaccine. So Eisenhower did exactly what Patricia asked you about. He harnessed the government's power to help vaccinate the people, the young children of this country. Right, Bill? Right, and he didn't want to. That's yeah, the he was opposed point, to it. Because the day after the announcement by Tommy Francis, there were signs in store windows, thank you, Dr. Salk. And then people started asking, what's the government going to do? Well, the secretary of HEW was Mrs. Hobby from Texas, and she had vowed that there would be no creep towards socialized medicine under her watch. And so the answer was the government's not going to do anything. But the public persisted, and Eisenhower finally said to her, you've got to do something. So she held a press conference, and she said she would seek an appropriation to buy vaccine, polio vaccine, for poor children. And with that, Senator Lister Hill had a press conference, and he said, no, no child has to declare themselves poor to be protected. I will seek an appropriation for all children, which he did. And that's what caused Eisenhower then to make this speech. Three months later, that bill had gone through. The federal government bought the vaccine. And that act is still in effect. That's why the federal government buys vaccine for children in this country now. And think of it. It's the one part of our medical system where we have a single-payer system since 1955, and it works. Um, Patricia, there is yet another uh, parallel between then and now, uh, the politics of vaccination coming into play with uh, those forces, maybe not opposed to polio vaccines, but not wanting the government to be involved. We're not going to have socialized medicine in this country. I would guess, I'm, I mean, this is real speculation, but it wouldn't surprise me if some of those people who opposed it to socialized medicine were the same people who were campaigning against fluoride in our water as a communist plot. <laughs> well, and also that system that was developed um, uh, in the 1950s is alive and well and almost unchanged today. That is what is so incredible to me. And also, um, you know, for every new parent who has a baby, um, those vaccinations um, come at, you know, like clockwork at your pediatrician's office, 
three months, six months, a year. Um, and it has really just become ingrained in, uh, in just the practical lives of Americans. And it also does give people, um, I think, so much reassurance sending their children out into the world. And in fact, it's those months um, when they're just newborns that you really do worry about them so much because they have not been vaccinated yet. Um, although even when I was pregnant, you are also required to be vaccinated for the whooping cough. And that was something obviously that was developed um, uh, earlier as well. Um, and because you know so much, uh, Dr. Vaggie, do you happen to know if there was a patchwork of states as they implemented that? How did the rollout go once President Eisenhower declared that it would happen and then that it would be pushed out to the states. How did the rollout go? It, it went better than you can imagine because of what Bill was talking about, the great fear of polio. I mean, uh, mm. it was palpable. I can remember the same thing, that we couldn't go to movies in the summertime. And so this fear inspired people to uh, get vaccinated. But there were, of course, differences state to state. And some states then made requirements that you had to have this in order to get to school, and other states didn't. At the time of the uh, Carter administration in the late 70s, as we were looking at how do we improve immunization, we found only 17 states had that as a requirement for school entry. And so one of the first things was to get all states to do that. And when you talk about the states, the different uh, rollout plans, one of the things I noticed was when I was at CDC was that you could rank the states. Some of them would have over 90% coverage, some 80%, they'd be some down in the 60s. But the interesting thing is you could take a state that was 62% covered and you could move one person from the 90% state to that state and that one person would change what happened in the state that was lagging behind. It shows the power of leadership and, and what can happen with management. And, you know, it's the, the whole power of science is in its use, not in its existence. And so managers turn out to be so important in public health because they actually interpret science to change health. So, um, Bill, one of the things I thought about when I thought about first Salk with his shot and then Sabin with his oral vaccine was another parallel with today. Um, Salk, uh, we know that there were polio outbreaks and other, I think other illnesses as well among some people who had the Salk vaccine, correct? And the Sabin oral vaccine came along as a corrective to that. Have I, first of all, have I got that basically correct? Well, it was only one out the, the Cutter incident, which occurred just two weeks after uh, Francis had had that press conference. And it shows you the value of having had a uh, phase three study. It was Cutter uh, Laboratories in California that had not killed all of the polio virus in the vaccine. There were three other manufacturers at the same time. And CDC really developed its reputation on that outbreak because they very quickly determined it was one company that was causing the problem, not all of them. Well, but one of the reasons I thought about it in parallel to today is I, I, can't, I, I can only imagine that that concern um, fed the fears of, again, the anti-vaxxers of those times, the people who thought there was, you know, first of all, it shouldn't be socialized medicine, also may have opposed vaccines, in the same way that people are seizing upon, say, breakthrough cases of COVID um, as an excuse to uh, challenge whether vac the vaccine today has any efficacy whatsoever or maybe is dangerous, right? Yeah, I think you're correct in that. But it's still the fear of the disease was so great that even the Cutter incident could not stop people from getting vaccinated. The, the most dangerous vaccine we've ever had is smallpox vaccine. And it's one of the reasons we stopped using it in this country, even before the disease was eradicated from India and Pakistan and, and Bangladesh. It was because we were having... Uh, on average, seven deaths a year in this country just from the vaccine itself, plus lots of other people that were injured and hospitalized and so forth. And the fear of smallpox, though, was so great 
that you could get people to take that risk. Now people have trouble comparing the risks because they don't see the diseases. All they see is what's the risk of vaccine and they're not gonna take it. They would prefer that everyone else would vaccinate their children and take the risk of vaccine so that they don't have to take the risk of vaccine or disease. Okay, I've got to get to our final break of the show. More with Patricia Murphy and Dr. Bill Fagey in a moment. <laughs> um, Dr. Fagey, as I was getting uh, prepared to uh, have this conversation with you and Patricia Murphy, I uh, saw that MAP International, one of Georgia's great global health institutions, uh, which every year... Uh, presents an award to public health heroes, as they call them, uh, in, name, in your name. It's the Bill Fagey, I think, Global Health Award is what it's called. I, I may not have it completely right. But you're, that's coming up in a few weeks. And the honorees this year, not a bad group, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, our friend, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, has been a guest, I'm glad to say, on Political Rewind any number of times. And uh, Catalin Carrico, who's important because she was um, senior vice president of BioNTech, which is one of the major developers, uh, developed the Pfizer uh, vaccine. Dr. Fagey, um, it, and last year it was Paul Farmer who was awarded, another one of the great leaders in public health. I congratulate you for being the, the named honor, uh, uh, the naming honor of that uh, award. They they give me honor, and uh, I always find it, to tell you the truth, a little bit embarrassing. But this year, it's different with the coronavirus, because when you look at the people that you've just named, uh, Carlos Del Rio is an immigrant from Mexico. And look at what we owe to Mexican immigrants. The uh, Dr. Carico, who developed the messenger RNA vaccine, and by the way, in my journal, I first met, mentioned messenger RNA 25 years ago in my journal after hearing a lecture. And I looked at this the other day and I said, I still don't understand it, but I'm glad Dr. Carico does. So here, an immigrant from Hungary <laughs> that has produced that, uh, that vaccine. And then uh, you have the frontline workers and the person who will answer for the frontline workers is Dr. Cantos from Ecuador, another immigrant, and then Tony Fauci, whose four grandparents were born in Italy. I mean, the, the theme couldn't be clear what we owe to immigrants. Um, Patricia, uh, I, I think we should not let the show go by completely, although we're not going to be able to get into, depth, into it in depth, without saying a few words about the fact that, that Bill Fagey is the man who, uh, although he's reluctant to take as much credit as he deserves, who really was responsible for eradicating smallpox. He came up with a plan to eradicate the disease, devised the strategy, and then executed it. And uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, Patricia, it is the only disease that's been completely eradicated to this day, Patricia. It's the uh, only yes. human. It's the only human Sorry. disease. There's human. one other disease, Rinderpest, that's been eradicated. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. Well, where are you going to get to work on? Well, Bill, get to work on that, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Patricia. Um, but what I, th what I think is so remarkable about your work, Dr. Fagey, uh, is that so much of it was done overseas and that you spent so much of your career in Africa. And that is where so much of the achievement came from, that you went into um, a continent that does not have the kind of public health infrastructure that we have here. And that is where smallpox was still um, was still uh, in existence. And you were able to do your best work by exporting it. Um, and uh, I think that it really is an example of how global health has really replaced the concept of public health um, and how tied we all are. And could COVID be any more of a stark reminder how tied we all are together um, to uh, all the other countries and all the other people around the globe? Um, and we, when I uh, look at the news every morning, I like to sort of check international headlines as well. And Australia is still uh, struggling so much 
we are struggling so much. Europe, Africa, it's just uh, it's just incredible to see um, how much work there is still left to do. And um, for so long, the United States had been the leader in that. And I wonder if you think that um, our own struggles uh, with deploying the vaccine here will that have will that change? Do you think the international opinion of the public health infrastructure here? Um, how do you think that it affects global health and our role in it? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the, the connection between public health and global health. I tell students, no matter where you are in the world, it is local and global. Therefore, no matter where you're working, you're working on global health. And it's true that uh, the world has looked to CDC as the uh, uh, as the place when they have a problem, uh, it's the gold standard. But our reputation has been tarnished. There's no question about it. And I talk about the triumph and, and tragedy of coronavirus, the tragedy being two centuries of learning what to do with an infectious disease outbreak, and we didn't use any of the lessons we had learned. Uh, it's incredible. We've, the lessons have said you have to know the truth. We didn't know the truth. In the same press conference, we'd hear two versions of what people said was the truth. You have to have coalitions. You have to look at this globally. In the middle of this outbreak, our president leaves WHO. I mean, it's just incredible to think of all of the mistakes. So I now tell students we have one more lesson that we've learned this year, and that is lessons unheeded are useless. And I talk about Mark Twain saying, people who don't read have no advantage over people who can't read. And a country that does not use its lessons in public health might as well be an 18th century country. So that's the tragedy just over and over. And yes, this has hurt our reputation. And we haven't learned how to do uh, the follow-ups on cases and so forth. And we heard all this talk early on about uh, herd immunity. And right at the beginning, I wrote an editorial about herd immunity. This cannot be our target. It didn't work in smallpox. It won't work here. So yes, we've lost it. But then the triumph, the other side of this, to have a vaccine that's not only good, but it's absolutely spectacular. This virus, as dangerous as it is, cannot stand up to the science. And so that's the triumph in all of this. And uh, we have to balance those. And then you ask the question, how could the same people in the White House have blocked public health and at the same time produce this vaccine? I don't know the answer, but it may be just as simple as it's easy to make a public health proclamation and say this will disappear by magic or we need herd immunity as as uh, uh, the one of his medical advisors uh, scott atlas said it's easy to do that but it's very difficult to say i know how to make a vaccine the only thing they could do is provide resources to the companies and to nih and then get out of the way and that's what they had to do so the same people could do a really terrible job on public health and a great job on science. Bill Fagey, I, I made this comment on the show the other day, and I'm curious how you uh, feel about it. I, I, I sort of, I had an, this notion one night. I imagined if our political world were a little bit different and have been for, say, the last year or so, when President Biden took office, if he and, and, and former President Trump had been able to set aside all the crazy differences, have a joint news conference where Biden could say, President Trump, we are so grateful that you harnessed your administration to produce this remarkable vaccine in such a short period of time. It will truly protect us against the ravages of the disease. Thank you. And then Trump, in my imaginings, uh, and certainly it's a fantasy, would turn to Biden and say, and now, President Biden, I support all the efforts you're making to uh, get the vaccine distributed. It tells you a lot about how politics, it's a, it's a silly fantasy, but it does say something about how politics has completely disrupted the process, doesn't it? And, and you know, Bill, if President Biden had said, 
as Louis Pasteur did, I'm going to call this the Trump vaccine. That would have changed everything. Patricia, we're, uh, we, we are going to continue to see. We've got, what, 40-some percent of the Georgians uh, vaccinated. And now we're going to start to wonder whether, you know, D- Dr. Feige and I are in that same, you know, he's a little bit older than I am, but not that much. And now the question is going to be whether we get uh, booster shots. And, and because, Patricia, the science is still out on that, and I'll ask Bill about it in a second, it, le- it contributes to this questioning among people about whether vaccines are, are valuable to get or not. Well, I think that those of us who have bought into the vaccine are ready to go in for booster number three. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be the first in line. Um, but Dr. Feige, we, it, your ideas of what should have happened, I think, are so powerful. What one or two pieces of advice would you give to political leaders now to really get us mm. over this hump and just get the rest of the people vaccinated who need to be so that we can move on? I think two things. Number one is to give public health its voice so that, uh, and I think President Biden has been trying to do this. I'm pleased with that. But number two, to make it clear how tied we are to the rest of the world. For instance, this question of boosters. Um, If you look at numerators and denominators, Clinicians deal with numerators, the people that come to them, to the clinics or the hospitals. Public health people deal with the denominators. And so when it comes to boosters, if you're a clinician, it makes great sense because this booster shot improves tenfold your protection. I mean, it's really great. If you're a public health person and you look at the denominator, you say, how can I take a third shot when there are people that have not had first shots and second shots in India and Africa and other places? And so it's a difficult thing. They're saying we can do both, but they're not proving it. Dr. Bill Feige, we are completely out of time for uh, today's show, Um, but I'm so grateful uh, that you spent time with us today. Patricia Murphy, of course, I'm always glad you're my partner on the Friday show. Uh, Bill, uh, I'll do a quick plug for you. For people who want to learn more about the remarkable campaign that you led against smallpox, your book, House on Fire, is really thrilling reading. It reads like a detective story, and I really would recommend people get it. We're also going to look, we did a show about your effort to fight uh, uh, smallpox, Uh, on two-way street a long time ago. We're going to find a link to that and uh, publish it on our social media so people can hear it. We're out of time. Dr. Fagey, Patricia Murphy, thank you so much. Back on Monday. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy. Yes, wear a mask these days, indoors especially. And please tell the people you know who aren't vaccinated, it's time to act now. Take care, everybody.